Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Pensions and Investments, where my guests and I will bring you up-to-date information on pension funds, securities class action litigation, and all things related to your investment portfolio and shareholder recoveries. I am Atara Torsky, securities attorney in New York City, and I'm here today speaking to Richard Wilson. Richard is the CEO and founder of the Family Office Club, the number one largest association of over 2,000 registered ultra-wealthy families and their family offices. Richard also represents private investors with an average net worth of $22 million through his company, theprivateequity.com investor portal. Richard is a best-selling author of a great book, How to Start a Family Office. He's a force in the family office community and someone who really knows his way around the investment world. And just to add to his many talents, he has a post-master's degree in psychology from Harvard. Hi, Richard. Welcome to my show. How are you today? Great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. The um, the only thing that's changed in my bio is um, we changed over privateequity.com to uh, investorclub.com, but everything else sounded uh, great. Love hearing you talk about me, I guess. So thank you for for having me on here and happy to answer whatever questions you have. Yeah, well, that's the idea. I mean, honestly, I thought when I came across your profile on LinkedIn, you were just so interesting. You have such an interesting background and I would love to kind of jump right in and get to your story and hear, how did you start, you know, this whole family offices? How did you get into that? Sure. Uh, well, I started uh, five businesses before I got out of high school and I was always reading Inc. Magazine as a kid and going to my dad's business meetings because he had his own business. And out of college, I had a couple of businesses. And so when I got into risk consulting, which is about as exciting as it sounds, it's crazy boring. And um, I uh, was making good money. I was making six figures as a 21-year-old. Um, I said, I can't do this the rest of my life. I'll go crazy. So I need to do something where it doesn't matter how old I am. It just matters what I get done. So I settled on either commercial real estate or raising capital, working in financial markets. And so I went the raising capital route. And when I got into a role doing that, I stumbled on the term family office and I thought, oh, well, if I'm raising capital, I might as well only talk to the people with the most capital. And that turned out to be very hard. And there was no, there were no books, there was no thought leaders, there was no trail guide on how to talk to family offices, where they are, who they are, how many there are. And the only people being helpful at all was, was a random journalist who would write an article in the industry, but they never worked in the industry. It'd be little tidbits here and there. So um, I just started a website sharing what I was learning by meeting with family offices, mostly to teach myself how to be better working with them and sharing my insights. And it took off. We got 1,000, 3,000, 5,000 plus hits a day. And then we kind of parlayed that into um, buying familyoffices.com and writing a book for Wiley. And then fast forward a, a decade and a half, and I've spoken 250 times in 15 countries and written 14 books. And it's all about in our, in our world, it's just all about building the funnel through being really helpful to people by providing insights on like a podcast like this, for example. No, you know, it's so interesting what you said. You know, I work uh, primarily with the public pension fund sector. Um, I do work with private clients. And I notice exactly what you're saying is that, you know, public uh, pension funds, information is out there, right? You can kind of Google a pension fund and you can figure out who everybody is and, and who the players are and how much their asset size is and what they need or what they don't need, how you can service them. It's much different in a family wealth office world, right? It's a much, um, I would say, more private uh, world where the information is not forthcoming either, you know, online or, or even in person when you meet them. So that's, that's a challenge. And I'm, I'm curious, like how you actually overcame that. Right. Um, 
One thing is that most of them don't talk to each other a lot. They're busy serving their clients. And so they don't have a view of the forest. And so I found that was one way to add value to them. Um, just letting them know what other trends are, what other CEOs of family offices are getting paid, how they're structuring their deals, et cetera. And then also found that there would be opportunities to connect them to each other. And so we would start hosting conferences. We positioned ourselves as a top group in the industry by calling it Family Office Club. And then we also built up our LinkedIn group to have 100,000 plus members in it, which is, and so that, that really helped position us. And so um, from then, I was just doing more of the same, listening to what their needs are, connecting them to each other, finding ways to add value. And one of the niches where we've added a lot of value is creating over 100 family offices for ultra wealthy families. And it could be 20 to $30 million net worth, or you know, one of my clients that I work with daily is a billion dollar plus net worth. And then there's everything in between. And they all need help creating and formalizing their family offices, and then also help sourcing deal flow. Like one of our clients is a shark from Shark Tank. And even though they have that positioning, they still need not only better deal flow, but help negotiating and structuring those deals and then bringing them something that really hits their strike zone and has been de-risked time-wise for them to take a serious look at. Interesting. So is there a specific investment strategy that you would say private investors have that's different than public institutional fund? Uh Yes, I would say that many times a family office can play a strong offense in the area where they created their wealth. So many times a classic endowment or pension fund portfolio um, is diversification, and some might be famous for going a little bit heavier on alternatives, or some might engage an institutional investment consultant that's very strong in one area or another, and they take a thesis on you know repositioning 8% one way or the other. But the family office is very different in that, especially first generation wealth, it was created in manufacturing or healthcare or real estate, and that influences the portfolio. And so many families mess this up when they get started, but typically the most effective strategy for a family that does want to be at least somewhat active and not just sit on the beach full time and do nothing, because usually the entrepreneur types get very bored if they were to even try to do that for half a year. Um, so what happens is that the smartest ones I know look at how they created their wealth, what skill sets and distribution and relationships and industry expertise got them there. And then they choose just one or two things. And most of them put about 25% or so in real estate, some more, some less. But um, a lot of them look at where they created that wealth and either the skill sets, distribution or industry are then used to say, okay, we didn't make our wealth in stem cells but we think it's the future. So we're gonna put a lot of our proactive energy there or we made our money in manufacturing. So we're gonna invest in manufacturing tech and manufacturing companies in our region. Um, and then they'll still invest in many other things and diversify greatly, but you know, 20 to 30%, even 40% of their net worth might be in playing offense in the industry where they know they have an edge over everyone else. And that's why they're ultra wealthy. And that edge they can play to grow their net worth while the rest of the portfolio helps defend them against market changes and or, or death to the principal and the family, et cetera. Wow, interesting. Okay, so you use the term ultra wealthy. What is the threshold number for um, a family office? When people throw that around, um, if you have seven to $10 million net worth, you could probably join a multifamily office, which is like a wealth management firm built to serve the ultra wealthy in a bit more holistic way. Um, once you get to the seven and 10 and 15, 20 million net worth, 
all the way up to a hundred or a couple hundred million, you could form what's called a virtual family office, which means that you have maybe one person half time or maybe one or two people full time and everything else is outsourced. You might even outsource everything except for yourself, but you have some of that holistic management that's more cohesive um, than a normal uh, high net worth individual would have. And then once you have 50 to 70 million or 100 million, you could choose. You could say, oh, I want a virtual family office. I want to keep it super lean. Or for every $50 million net worth or so, you could hire one to two professionals full time. And so some families have 10 or 20 or 50 people working within their single family office, which is just for them. Wow. Interesting. So I know traditionally a lot of money in the family wealth world was invested in U.S. equities. Has that shifted a bit or is that still the case? Yeah, that's shifted greatly. Um, I think that families have always had some legacy assets in the industry where they created their wealth. And I think they've always had some real estate, but I've seen a move towards more real estate when stock market prices are high. Investors may have a lot of their money in the stock market, but um, extra cash that's generated will probably get kicked into real estate development or real estate <clears throat> assets that are cash flowing. Um, and they might hold a little bit more cash on the balance sheet um, in case of a downturn, but not too much because inflation is going crazy right now. Um, and then be trying to build a platform company or something that dominates a small niche within that industry where they created their wealth. That's super interesting. So tell me, how does somebody of venture capitalists build relationships with the ultra wealthy families? Sure. Yeah. If you're a venture capitalist or private equity professional or head of a real estate firm, um, the best way to build a relationship is to add value first. Everybody comes knocking to them for their money. Like one of my clients who's worth a billion dollars yesterday said, oh, the older I get, the more I'm confusing love and money. And like, why are people being so nice to me right now? <laughs> Uh, you know, so people just come and they just pitch. And even when you get a meeting with the family office, people just pitch for 40 minutes and be like, oh, do you have any questions? And they'll say that at the end of pitching for so long. Instead, they should go to them like I did to a $160 million net worth family when I first moved to Arizona. And I went to get my car service somewhere and they had a really unique business model. And I looked at their website. I saw they had like 30 locations. Um, and I reached out to them and it was cold. And I reached out to the two owners with the same two sentence email and they both replied to me and then we met in person. And so I basically said, I see that you have all of these centers, you must be expanding greatly. Uh, we represent ultra wealthy families and we have a structure so that as you open new locations, you don't get diluted um, and you can get the, the capital in without giving up all the equity on these locations as you grow. You know, do you have 15 minutes to chat about this structure? Cause I'm right down the road here in Scottsdale um, so finding that angle where you can add value, like, oh, I see that um, you work in this industry. Um, I do as well. If, um, if you know that they have children or whatever, so they talk about it in their bio, you could say, oh, if one of your kids ever needs an internship in the industry or something, you know, we own two manufacturing companies and we're happy to kind of help them see some outside experience and how we run things or help groom them, um, et cetera, or connect two families to each other or a piece of deal flow to them and say, oh, I see that you made your money in this. By chance, we're working on this deal and you know we already have all the capital we need, but you know, in case you just wanted to take a look at it and get to know us, this is what we're doing. And you know, happy to have you join us in case you thought it was really exciting. Well, I think you make such a good point because I notice, you know, even as an attorney, a lot of my competitors 
will make a huge mistake at, at conferences or at meetings of talking about themselves. I'm so great. I settled this case, right? I did this, I did that. And I try to really never do that. You know, if they're interested, they will ask me about myself, but really it's what can I offer you? How can I help you? So I think that you're saying that. And I think that that's a really important point for service providers to remember. It's, it's not about you and how great you are. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's really about the client and how you can service them. And, and you have to find that place where it's meaningful to them and tap into that and make that work. I think that's pure gold what you just said. That's more valuable than anything I just said because so many people mess that up. We do like, we do 16 to 25 conferences a year. And I can't tell you the number of Groundhog's Day conversations I've had with sponsors from people who are intelligent. They manage. $300 million. And they say, here's my pitch deck. And we're like, oh, well, we told you it had to be educational. And they're like, oh, well, I'm here to raise capital for my fund. So I'm supposed to pitch my fund, right? How do I be educational and pitch my fund? I'm like, well, maybe impress them with how damn smart you are. And then they'll want to invest in your exactly. fund. Like, you know, like, <laughs> Uh, it's just so foreign, even the really smart yes, people. Yes, I don't know why. It's Well, it's interesting because you said um, you have a degree in psychology, right? So maybe for you, it, it's like from a psychological, social perspective, like it makes perfect sense. This is how we have to treat people. We have to treat them and, and talk to them about what's important because that's just mm. the way to like make friends and influence people, right? Remember that book that still has power? But I think a lot of people really, really, really miss that. Like to me, the biggest compliment a client will give me after I've like quote pitch to them is they'll say, Oh, th thanks. And now can you tell us something about yourself? And I'm like, so I did a good job because I didn't talk about myself and now they actually want to hear. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, um, I was in a meeting recently and my, my client manages over a billion dollars of real estate and the meeting was supposed to go over three things, but the whole time the counterparty just talked about themselves. And I said, Hey, I tried to jump in and redirect the energy there to kind of like actually get something done here today. He's like, Oh, that's fine. People need to get stuff off their chest. And then once they do, it's easier to work with them. It's better, et cetera. And I guess like, you know, Robert Cialdini has this influence principle of reciprocation and um, consistency and people like to work with those that are similar to themselves. And so I think that, you know, when you listen to someone talk a lot, it's almost like, okay, they'll then reciprocate and be more open to what you say, but you can also customize everything you say to what they just said and point out the things that are common between you versus focusing on everything or the wrong thing on accident. So definitely it's related to that. I think kind of subconsciously, I, I kind of have guardrails on to try to act that way. Right. Tell us what is, are some of the, you know, million dollar mistakes that ultra wealthy families make all the time? Sure. Yeah. Um, big ones are they become ultra wealthy suddenly. Sometimes a lot of them don't make 5 million a year, every year for 10 years, they sell their company or they take it public. And all of a sudden they go from 8 million net worth to 200 or something. Um, and so a lot of them will start investing in everything around them without any focus, without any game plan. And the worst yet is to add on top of that, they'll think they're getting a little bit of diversification by investing in a whole bunch of startups that are all super high risk and they all go sideways and they can't step in to like make things right. So that's a, that's a big mistake. The other mistake is just trusting those who have immediate access around them versus those who work with family offices and the ultra wealthy all of the time, because there are things that everybody learns the hard way if you don't learn them the easy way after five or seven or 10 years of running your family office, then you're gonna figure some things out about playing offense versus defense and where to diversify versus not and how to source the best real estate deals. And a lot of families 
Uh, the third mistake is that a lot of families will think they're getting good deal flow. One of my friends sold his business for $40 million and he said, oh, I've been getting crazy amount of deal flow. I've probably seen 30 deals the last two years. And um, I know for a fact it would have been sent 30 deals in the last seven, seven days. And part of it is because we run a big investor club. But the point is that really well-connected families will see uh, a thousand deals a year. And the statistical result of that is that you can find something that's two or three standard deviations away from an average deal that can have excellent returns with really well-protected downside. And the more you can be strategic money and not just money coming into a deal, then the more you can negotiate a better valuation and get better terms and see deals first and exclusively. And that, that dramatically changes the effects on the portfolio that those investments have. Interesting. I also think what you said um, earlier is so important. Having a place for you know the family wealth offices to come together and to see what everybody else in their space is doing, I think is so meaningful because I think that's really how you learn more than any other way. Wouldn't you agree? Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think that um, people enjoy connecting to you know and find some people that um, you know have have things in common with them so that they can share share in that. Right. Are investors looking uh, these days to be more socially responsible, environmentally responsible? How, what are you finding in the private sector? Yeah, definitely a lot of them are. Sometimes there's a little bit of a struggle between the next generation being like hyper focused on that and the previous generation being like, okay, but we don't want to, you know, um, squander the wealth or get super low returns because of that. So I think the, the way to get it approved at places is really to find a way to do that, but in a way that actually makes the business more profitable, like, oh, we can do solar and we get the tax credits for solar and it's energy efficient and everybody's happy. Um, or, oh, we can employ these types of professionals that really don't get a fair shake in the marketplace. Um, and for some reason, because of a government credit or some other thing, it actually makes it so our labor costs go down, but we're helping people that are really needing these types of opportunities. And like that, that's where it's, the most gets done. Otherwise, you know, people love to talk about it at conferences and talk about this big trend and something for the journalists to talk about. But many big families don't focus on it massively. Uh, but I think they will be more and more over time. Right. I think what you said is also interesting that there's a dichotomy in the age demographic between the investors, right? I, I recently had a conversation with a client who was on the older side, and we were talking about a particular equity that, that was troubling from a social perspective. And she was like, you know what? I just, I don't care. I just don't care about the social aspect at all. Um, and I said to her, you know, it's interesting because I, at some point you have to care, like your investment, like, especially in the, in the equity world, if it's, if the company is not socially responsible, if they're not interested in what's going on around them, if they don't care about people, that's actually going to come back to haunt them. And that will eventually make that asset less valuable. So the truth is you need to care. And I think we need to catch up to understanding that. And that's something that the um, the older generation, you know, they, they need to understand that. And that's not true of every investment, but it's true of many companies. Yeah, for sure. I think that when people when we are another decade older and 15 years older and generally running or just about to completely run 90% of the family offices that are out there, um, then I think that will change things. And I, but I, I do think that the more families can think, how do we have our cake and eat it too, um, the better, because then other families will actually do more good and not have the stigma against like, oh yeah, okay, well, okay, go research that you know, feel goody idea, but we need to put money into real estate and these companies and, 
you know, but on almost every deal, there's a way to structure it more intelligently. And there's probably a way to do something that makes it a little bit more kind of uh, impactful and sustainable or ESG related, et cetera. I think that's true. So has fintech changed the way investors are investing? Yes, I think it has. I think that um, especially in 2021, it turned on a lot of family offices um, to crypto and blockchain that had ignored it before. We were already seeing many families invest in it in 2020. By 2021, you know, it really crossed over into mainstream. And um, I don't want to say almost everyone, but a lot of the industry has put you know, a percent or two of their net worth, or at least some base amount of, you know, a quarter million dollars or, or something into crypto, just have some sort of position there in case it does keep on growing as much. So that was a really big change. And, you know, women having these like crypto kids, you know, they were always like 26 year old people. It looked like they had just rolled out of their MBA class the day before at our conferences for like the last seven or 10 years. And and I remember, especially when they started coming more often, it was like every conference would have some sort of crypto sponsor. And I wasn't getting it uh, at first, you know, not, now we're invested in this space in many ways, but like I wasn't getting it at first. And I could see the older guard kind of being like, what are these crypto kids talking about this nonsense? Like <laughs> right. how ridiculous. And now those kids are laughing on a beach in the Cayman Islands or something, and they don't have to go to any conferences and I should have listened to them. But it's been interesting to see. And I think it's taught people whether it's COVID and pivoting your business model or whether it's crypto or whether it's the explosion of growth in cannabis. Um, I think people are more on their toes of watching for that next trend and moving fast on that. Right. And not doing the same old thing, because if you do the same old thing, you're just going to get the same results. So you have to mix it up. For sure. So let's talking about COVID for a moment. How has that changed the investment landscape in your opinion? Right. Tons of Zooms, almost to a fault. Sometimes people just enjoy a, a good old school phone call um, just because you don't have to be like on video and you might you know, want to take a walk outside or something and not have the camera bouncing. So, um, but people are more comfortable investing without ever meeting face to face, obviously. Um, and I think that there is a rush because of COVID and the inflation that's come with it to get capital to work. And then there's been a lot of transactions that people get capital kicked back to them from sales and then they have to go put it to work again. So there's there's an urgency to that because every month, if you believe inflation is at 12%, which some people claim it's 20%, so it is printed 20% more money. And some people, you know, the government claims 6%, but they don't count a lot of stuff that shot straight up. And so we know it's more than 6%, so let's call it 12%. Well, then you're losing 1% a month on your cash. Um, if you had an investment that made you 1% a month in, in a normal economy, that'd be a pretty good investment. But now you have one that loses you money 1% a month. So there's an urgency to put that capital to work. Right. That's interesting. So speaking about in-person events, you have a 500-person in-person event coming up, right, with um, many investors and family offices. Um, tell us a little about that before we end. I'd, I'd love our audience to know. Yeah, sure. It's called the uh, Family Office Super Summit. It's our biggest event of the year. We're going to have um, 500 professionals there and you know, 10 virtually, but in person will be more fun and engaging, obviously, like most events. And we'll have um, two billionaires on stage, four heads of publicly traded companies. We'll have a shark from Shark Tank speaking and dozens of private investors and family offices on stage and about 250 investors in the room. And um, if there's any investors here that would like to attend, you're welcome to do so as our guest for free. Uh, and, you, and just um, shoot me an email if you'd like to do that. It's Richard 
at investorclub.com. And then um, if someone is raising capital or runs a business and they want to meet investors, then they can just um, attend that event as one of our charter members. And they can learn more about it at familyoffices.com forward slash super. And uh, it's on December 13th in Fort Lauderdale. So it's always a super fun event. Um, from our last event, like nine weeks ago, um, I know that there's been a $300 million equity investment term sheet signed from that conference and many meetings and uh, negotiations in the works and probably other deals closed that, that I'm not aware of. But we get a lot of business done at these events and tons of meetings and interactions going on. So we're definitely looking forward to that one. Yeah, no, I think it's a great service that you're providing. And I'll put all that information in our show notes for anyone who didn't catch it. But thank you for coming on, for educating my audience about family offices and the various ways um, to go about really growing your wealth in the private wealth area. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, no problem at all. Happy to come back anytime and have you on our family office podcast sometime as well. Thank you, Richard. Have a great day.